Good evening. Um, let me re-welcome you. I'll assume that uh, uh, most of you were here last night, so I won't uh, spend time reintroducing myself, but welcome you back for the second in Andy Knowles' three lectures, the uh, Lewis Clark Van Uxen lectures that are uh, co-sponsored by the Public Lectures Committee and by Princeton University Press. Um, and so uh, it's a pleasure for me now to turn things over to my colleague, uh, Peter Grant, in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and Peter will introduce Andy Grant. I'd like to introduce Simon Levin, who uh, didn't introduce himself, but assumed that everybody knew who he was. And I think that's probably a reasonable assumption, because as far as I can see, looking around the audience, all of you were here last night. Um, so what I would really like to do is introduce Goethe Keller, who introduced uh, Andy Knoll last <laughs> night. But if I try to do that, I don't think Goethe, who is here, would uh, come up onto the podium. So instead, I'm going to just uh, check on that assumption that you really were here yesterday by making a remark. And the response to this remark, I can gauge, from this I can gauge whether you were here or not. So here it is. It is my pleasure to welcome Andy Knoll uh, to us to give the second of the Lewis Van Uxum uh, lectures. Uh, Andy is um, already familiar to you. He is a distinguished Harvard eukaryote. <laughs> you passed the test, you know what the eukaryote joke was that he made uh, yesterday. So it is a pleasure really for one eukaryote to introduce another one. And I bet, Andy, you've never had this sort of introduction before and never will probably ever again. It doesn't look as if you even have to define what a eukaryote is, so your audience is already well primed. So Andy, as you know from yesterday, is um, indeed a distinguished and well-decorated uh, person a uh, scientist of uh, large distinction, a person who has uh, done an extraordinary amount of research into an extraordinarily uh, diverse but fascinating problem of the origin and diversification of life across a very large span of time. Um, he started at a half a billion years ago and then went back uh, two billion years to the origin of life. And I think what he's going to be doing is turning around and coming back and reaching a climax tomorrow with a complete final definitive explanation of the diversification of the Cambrian organisms in the Cambrian explosion. That's what I'm hoping he's going to do. Um, suffice it for me to say that uh, he is only 21. He is uh, remarkably... <laughs> well, all right, you laugh, but you look at him again when he comes up here. Take a good look at that face and see if I'm wrong by more than about two or three years. Enough from me. It is my very great pleasure to welcome Andy Knoll to the podium once again to give us the second of these three fascinating lectures. Andy. Thank you, Peter. Um, I, I, I must say that uh, as a card-carrying Harvard eukaryote, I have to admit that sometime during the course of the last 24 hours, I, I met some yet-to-be-identified Princeton prokaryotes, and so I'm feeling a little bit of uh, under the weather tonight, so I, I, I hope that I won't uh, disappoint in this lecture. Well, last evening, 
We began, as, as Peter reminded you, with um, what to me remains the culminating event in the evolution of life, which is the, the diversification of, of animal life in the oceans about half a billion years ago. And then with uh, a little bit of muddling around, we actually ended up by being able to establish that already three and a half billion years ago, at the time when we first can identify rocks that we're capable of asking biological questions about, we find that life is already present. Now, in some ways, it is a life that is, if not unfamiliar, at least uh, broadly tinted by uncertainty. We really don't know all that much about the nature and diversity of life three and a half billion years ago. So the topic for tonight is to really take us from that uncertain, in some ways, alien world and actually bring us back to the brink of, of animal diversification. So the real question tonight is how do we actually build the biological diversity that comes to characterize the planet? Well, in order to do this, I want to start again in the field, as is uh, sort of my want in these lectures. And in fact, I'm going to start at the Great Wall. So. Take the first slide. Uh, like North Pole last night, this is probably not the Great Wall of your common experience. In fact, this Great Wall is several kilometers long, about 150 meters high, which actually separates two rivers in northern Siberia. And it turns out that, um, let's see, I must have a, no, I guess I don't have uh, something to, the river that you see in front of you is, in fact, a river we've met before. This is the Katuikan River. It is the same river that ran past the cliff that showed my, my opening shot last night, which is uh, an exposure of Precambrian-Cambrian boundary beds. And in fact, the rocks that make up this cliff, we also glimpsed last night in my second slide. That is those... Uh, Great, thank you. If you remember the second slide in which the base of the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary sedimentary succession was shown to be sitting on top of rocks just glimpsed above the river level, which were sitting at a rakish angle beneath uh, the Cambrian rocks. Well, in the Great Wall, those older rocks are breathtakingly well exposed. They are lying as flat as on the day they were deposited. And if we look at those rocks carefully, we find many of the same sedimentary motifs that we found in the late Precambrian rocks of Spitsbergen. That is, we find stromatolites, we find laminated tidal flat carbonates, we find teepee structures, tidal channels. So many of the same environments that we saw in the rocks from Spitsbergen are represented here, but these rocks are twice as old. They're about 1,500 million years old. And so at a little less than half the age of the North Pole rocks and twice the age of the Spitsbergen rocks, these turn out to be a good place to check on the pulse of life in middle age, if you will. Well, if we look at these rocks closely, you'll see that they have the one characteristic that brings joy to the paleontologist's heart, and that is there are early diagenetic chert nodules, that is nodules of silica that grew within a pre-existing 
carbonate sediment and replace the carbonate preserved in beautiful detail both the biological and physical textures of those rocks. And it turns out, unsurprisingly in, in light of our Spitzbergen experience, that these cherts are full of beautifully preserved microfossils. This is about 15 microns across. It is uh, a short filament of a cyanobacterium. So it's cyanobacteria again. And indeed, it's worth getting to know the cyanobacteria a, a little bit. They are, in a very real way, the kind of working class heroes of the Precambrian world. The cyanobacteria are the one group of bacteria that photosynthesize in the same way that green plants do. That is, they use water to provide electrons for the process of uh, photosynthetic energy generation, and they give off oxygen as a byproduct. Because of that, cyanobacteria were the dominant primary producers on this planet for probably at least its first two billion years of existence, and perhaps somewhat more than that, they are the ultimate source of the oxygen that uh, enriches the atmosphere. Not only are they important to our understanding of the history of our planet and the history of biology because of this uh, rather remarkable metabolism they evolved that was able to, to shape environment so strongly, but from a more practical point of view, they're worth getting to know as well because A, they're fairly readily preserved in the rock record, and B, by the inexacting standards of bacteria, they're actually morphologically fairly complex. And there are certain types of cyanobacteria that have shapes and life cycles that are not duplicated elsewhere in the bacteria and that's good for the paleontologist because it means we can actually identify them by shape alone in the fossil record. So because of their importance, because of the practicality of studying them, they turn out to be actually um, fairly good flagships for paleontological attempts to understand prokaryotic evolution. Well, I'll only show you two specific examples of cyanobacteria from these great wall rocks at a billion and a half years old. One, the first one that you see here, this little microcumulus cloud of cells, really repeats a type of observation that I made on the basis of the younger rocks in Spitzbergen. In rocks of this age, not only here, but widely throughout the world, it is microorganisms like this that were responsible for building many of the microbial mats that are preserved in tidal flat carbonates. What we're looking at is colonial cells. You can see the individual cells here. Each one of those is about four microns in diameter. And we know from the details of their cell division patterns, from the details of colony formation, from the rather specific pigmentation of the surfaces of these uh, cumulus cloud-like structures, that these billion and a half year old cyanobacteria are essentially indistinguishable from modern mat building cyanobacteria of the genus Antiphysalis seen here. Not only that, but just as we found in the younger cyanobacteria from Spitzbergen, if you look at sedimentological indicators of the environmental 
range in which you find these ancient antifistulid cyanobacteria, it is very, very similar to the range of environmental tolerances in which you find their modern counterparts today. This, for example, is along the Persian or Arabian Gulf, depending on your politics, uh, in Abu Dhabi. And this uh, dark green area that you see here is a series of tidal flat microbial mats forming today. And part of that range is made by anaphysalid cyanobacteria. And the same part of tidal ranges uh, was occupied by anaphysalid cyanobacteria a billion and a half years ago. There's another set of fossils that are fairly common in rocks of this age. Uh, they are broadly cigar-shaped individuals, large by the standards of bacteria. That is, this particular individual is about 50 microns long and 10 microns wide. Some of them are actually longer than 100 microns. And for a long time, these were problematic. But we actually found in these rocks from Siberia examples where we could actually find cells inside of here and see the germination of these structures to make new uh, vegetative filaments. And we're able to establish that those fossils are uh, essentially the fossilized version of this kind of cell seen in the modern cyanobacterium called anabena. Anabena and its, and its relatives are rather unusual among bacteria in that they're actually capable of cell differentiation. One of the types of cells they differentiate is something called an aconite. An aconite is really kind of a resting spore so that when conditions become intolerable for the growth of the organism, um, this resting spore is released and uh, it will then essentially hunker down until uh, conditions uh, for growth are, are restored. Now, that turns out to be particularly interesting because the types of cyanobacteria that have this capacity for cell differentiation uh, occupy, once again, a privileged position within the phylogenetic tree of cyanobacteria. Here is a molecular phylogeny of cyanobacteria published some years ago by Steve Giovannoni and colleagues. And what one finds is that all of the cyanobacteria that form these aconites are found up here in the uppermost or youngest branches of the cyanobacterial tree. For example, anabena that we saw in the uh, SEM photo there is one of the latest branching cyanobacteria of all the cyanobacteria that have been placed on the tree. What that tells us then is that if we have these kind of cyanobacteria already a billion and a half years ago, and we know from the work of Janine Sarfati, a French paleontologist, that these kind of cells actually existed 2,100 million years ago, that tells us that if they existed, much of the diversity architecture of cyanobacteria that we see today was already in place 2 billion years ago. Well, there's another reason to be particularly interested in this group of cyanobacteria, and that is that they differentiate a second type of cell. Not only do they have standard vegetative photosynthetic cells and these reproductive spores called aconites, but they also differentiate a thick-walled cell called a heterocyst whose job 
is to function in the biological fixation of nitrogen gas and to do it in a way that shields the nitrogen fixing enzymes from the influence of environmental oxygen. And that tells us something else that's different between the world of the North Pole and the world of the Great Wall. That is, between three and a half billion years ago and 1.5 billion years ago, oxygen began to accumulate in significant quantities in the Earth's atmosphere. Well, let's take a slight divergence then and see if we can, in the first instance, connect the dots between the North Pole and the Great Wall, see if we can very quickly learn how biology became established and diversified during that interval, and see if we can learn something about the processes and events by which this oxygenation of Earth's environments began. Now, this is another one of these pretty tourist pictures of Western Australia, but again, the reason for showing it is that the rocks that make up these hills are of tremendous paleobiological interest. These rocks are about 2.7 billion years old, and just in the past two months, there have been a series of papers on these that have established a remarkable sense of biological identity in some of these sedimentary rocks. It was not with fossils. There are very few body fossils in rocks of this age, and those that have been found are not particularly diagnostic of any specific physiology. But in these rocks, a team of Australian scientists led by a graduate student named Jochen Brox at the University of Sydney found rather exciting biomarker chemical evidence of a range of biologies. We can sort of illustrate what they found and give us some sense of the measure of biology 2.7 billion years ago by relating their discoveries to the universal tree that we talked about last night. In the first instance, this Australian team has established very recently that cyanobacteria actually secrete a specific type of membrane component which can be preserved and reliably identified in the geologic record, which as near as we can tell is only synthesized in any uh, quantity by the cyanobacteria. So it actually gives us a chemical indicator of cyanobacterial biology and it is present in these rocks that are 2.7 billion years old. So that means that this group, this branch of the bacterial tree is already present 2.7 billion years ago, and the implication would be then that earlier branches on the tree were also in at least some form present. Second thing that's clear from these rocks is that there are chemical indicators that tell us about this group in here, a group of archaeans or archaebacteria called methanogenic bacteria. Now, methanogens are interesting because they actually take hydrogen and CO2 and use that to generate methane, that's CH4, and they can generate methane actually by one or two other um, reactions as well. 
And they can use that as a chemical source of energy to drive their biology. And it turns out that these impart a very strong fractionation to carbon isotopes. You'll remember that I said there is a change in the ratio of C12 to C13 imparted by the fixation of carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. Well, these impart an additional fractionation that is much, much stronger and, in fact, make the biological materials that have the essentially lowest uh, C13 to C12 ratio of, of any materials known on the planet. So they have a very strong chemical calling card. They are not only present in rocks 2.7 billion years ago, but it's pretty clear that methanogenic bacteria were a major part in the completion of the carbon cycle in the oceans at that time, probably far stronger than they are today. The third thing that was found in rocks this age is that if one looks at sulfur species that are uh, entombed in these rocks, they also show a limited amount of biological fractionation. That means that the so-called sulfate-reducing bacteria, a group of bacteria that respire organic matter, but rather than using oxygen the way we do, they use uh, the sulfate ion. And those, they were present at that time, but it appears as though the oceans did not contain nearly as much sulfate as they do today. So rather than having the major role in the carbon cycle that sulfate-reducing bacteria have had for much of the second half of Earth's history, they appear to be limited by the amount of sulfate in the oceans. If we look on the tree, sulfate bacteria are found in a number of branches within the bacteria. There are also some sulfate-reducing archaea, so they're widely distributed on this tree. Now, what that tells us then is that there were rather diverse bacterial and archaeal ecosystems extant on this Earth by 2.7 billion years ago, that there were certainly metabolisms that would have been recognizable in terms of the biology of organisms that are extant today. That certainly there would have been a full complement of anaerobic metabolisms, that is, ways of making a living that do not involve oxygen. And just possibly, we already had the beginnings of a biology which used oxygen. And the reason that we can infer this is because of the one other discovery that this group made, which is the most astounding. And that is, they found another type of biomarker molecule called steranes. Steranes, at least the types of steranes that they found, can, as near as we can tell, are only derivable from membrane components of eukaryotes. Now, that tells us something very important, and there are limits to what we should read into that. First of all, it tells us that 2.7 billion years ago, this evolutionary limb had already begun to bud. Having said that, the biological differences between the Archaeans that we find on these branches and even the earliest branching, putatively simplest eukaryotic organisms alive today are profound. They are very different kinds of organisms. 
They have hundreds of characters that separate them. What this tells us is that at least one of those characters was present 2.7 billion years ago. To what extent the organisms that made those, the sterols that were the, the parent molecules for the, the geological sterines, to what extent those organisms really resembled card-carrying eukaryotic cells as we see today, we really don't know. But clearly, the beginnings of eukaryotic biology go deeply into Earth history. The other reason why these sterines are important is that you need molecular oxygen to synthesize the parent sterols. And you need at least about half a percent of current atmospheric levels of, of oxygen just to make this molecule. So that tells us that there was at least a little bit of oxygen around, possibly even enough for single cells to do aerobic, uh, aerobic respiration, the kind of air breathing breakdown of carbon molecules that we're all doing in this room. But probably not much more than a percent. So there's a little oxygen, but not much. Now, by about 2.2 to 2.1 billion years ago, it becomes clear that there is more than enough oxygen present for aerobic metabolisms to spread across the globe. This is a, a disarmingly simple little diagram that uh, represents much of the life work of my colleague Dick Holland at, at Harvard. Dick is a I hesitate to say this, but he's a Princeton boy in the blood, and uh, he keeps reminding us of Princeton all the time up there. So I'll, I will mention his, his work, and he'll be very, very happy. Um, what Dick has found over the years is that if you look at the chemistry of ancient soils, ancient uh, places where the Earth's surface is weathering and, and eroding, that soils formed before 2.3 billion years ago have a chemistry that differs from uh, soils that formed after 2.1 billion years ago. And the difference is attributable to higher levels of oxygen in the atmosphere beginning at this time. Also, as people have known for uh, two decades at least, if we look at the distribution of uranium in Earth's surface sediments, the type of uranium ores that one finds before 2.3 billion years ago, excuse me, are quite different from the type of uranium ores that one finds after 2.1 billion years ago. Again, the differences are most easily ascribed to an increase in the amount of oxygen in, in the Earth's atmosphere. So it, it appears very likely that we go from a world that had a little bit, but not much oxygen, less than 1% of present day oxygen levels before 2.3 billion years ago, to something that had at least a few percent of present day levels, perhaps as much as 10% of present day levels uh, soon thereafter. Now, why should that be? Why should the Earth change in its environment in such a fundamental way? Well, you might say, well, that's easy. You already told us the answer to that. The answer must be the evolution of cyanobacteria, because after all, cyanobacteria photosynthesize, make oxygen as a byproduct. Ipso facto, we will have uh, atmospheric evolution. There are two problems with that. The first problem is simply the historical one. That is, 
as I just told you, we now have evidence that cyanobacteria existed at least 2.7 billion years ago. That is, at least 400 million years before the earliest signs of this major atmospheric transition. The other problem, of course, is when we think about this from the standpoint of the carbon cycle as a whole, rather than just photosynthesis. In photosynthesis, we take carbon dioxide and water, and in the presence of light, make organic matter and oxygen. Of course, everyone in this room is running that reaction in the opposite direction right now. We're all breathing in oxygen, combining it with organic matter, and eliminating carbon dioxide and water. When you think about it then, it doesn't matter how much photosynthesis you have going on if you balance it with respiration and other oxygen-consuming reactions, there will be no net change in the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. So what you really have to do to have the potential to have atmospheric transition is to essentially break this cycle. And you break it by taking the organic matter that's made ultimately by photosynthesis and burying it in sediments, burying it on the seafloor where it's shielded from reacting with oxygen. Under those conditions, oxygen can build up. So really then, as, as Earth scientists, if someone asks the question, why does oxygen build up in the Earth's atmosphere, the answers have to do with the conditions, really the geological or tectonic conditions that promote the burial of organic matter. Now, it turns out we can actually ask fairly direct questions about the burial of organic matter, and we can use the carbon isotopic record to ask those questions. Now, all you really need to know, you'll remember that last time I said that we can use the carbon isotopic record um, to look at the differences between the isotopic composition of calcium carbonate and the isotopic composition of organic matter and use that difference called fractionation as a proxy for photosynthesis or, or other autotrophic reactions. What I didn't say is to make sure you look out for what the absolute values of these are. And so even though the fractionation values may remain fairly constant through time, the absolute value of the carbon isotopic composition of limestones changes through time. And this diagram shows in cartoon fashion how those changes have occurred through history. And the only thing you need to know to appreciate this diagram is the higher the value on this um, axis, the higher the proportional burial of organic matter as a percentage of all carbonates. And you'll notice that through most of the last 500 million years, the time during animals, except for um, an interval popularly known as the coal age, when a lot of coal was deposited, the system pretty much behaves itself. There's not all that much variation. You'll also notice that from a time which we now know, since this diagram was made, uh, runs from about 1,250 million years to about 2 billion years ago, the system also behaves itself. In fact, it behaves itself so eerily well that it presents a, a significant problem of how to really interpret uh, the biogeochemistry of the carbon cycle in this period. But notice also that 
at the beginning and again at the end of the Proterozoic, we have two intervals, one about 2,300 million years ago, one about six or 700 million years ago, when we have intervals of time when we have very high carbon isotopic values for carbonates and organic matter. And what that tells us is that these are times when we have high proportional burial of organic matter for reasons that have to do with tectonics. I'll talk about this one, which we know much better in detail uh, tomorrow, because uh, one of the, the punchlines here is that in the wake of these uh, carbon cycle permutations, we see animal life start to accumulate. Here we don't know it, uh, the causes as well, but at least we know that the process of organic carbon burial, which is what we would expect would be the causative agent in uh, making oxygen tensions change in the atmosphere, in fact was going on just when sort of paleoenvironmental proxies suggest oxygen is rising. What that means then is that we start layering a new type of biology on top of the biology that evolved in the first billion years of Earth history. On top of that biology, which is fundamentally uh, anaerobic or non-oxygen using physiologies, we add physiologies that require oxygen. Now, notice that the oxygen users do not displace and drive to extinction the non-oxygen users. In fact, to complete virtually any of the major elemental cycles of biologically interesting materials, whether it's carbon or sulfur or, or nitrogen, we really have to have both types of organisms. So what really happens is we can think of an analogy almost like building a new story on a house, that the aerobic biology that becomes prevalent after 2.2 billion years ago is like building a new floor on a secure foundation made of, of anoxic or anaerobic organisms. And just like the relation, structural relationship between the basement and the first floor of the house, the stability of that first floor depends fundamentally on the existence of the basement and not the other way around. So air, oxygen utilizing organisms are intercalated within and built on top of functioning ecosystems made originally of non-oxygen using organisms and the complexity of life enlarges. Now, a number of people thought for a number of years that we went from having very little oxygen two billion years ago to having nearly as much oxygen as we did today. But that can't be true, and one of the big arguments against that being true is this mountainside here in Western Australia. This is a mountain of pure iron ore, probably contains enough iron to serve current world needs for about 400 years. It formed during this time interval, and rocks like this keep on forming until about 1850 million years ago. That is, these kind of rocks, which you'll recall I said last evening, require that dissolved iron be able to move through the oceans without encountering oxygen until it reaches the surface, that those conditions continued on for hundreds of millions of years after 
this 2.1 to 2.2 billion year event. And what appears to be the case now, more and more, is that the major change in biology was one from an earlier biology in which you have photosynthesis allowing us to have very small amounts of oxygen in surface waters and iron-rich waters at depth in the oceans to a world beginning about 2.1 billion years ago in which we had moderate amounts of oxygen in the surface. And now, rather than having iron-rich waters at depth, we have hydrogen sulfide-rich waters at depth. What happens then is the methane-producing bacteria cease to be dominant contributors to the marine carbon cycle. Sulfate-reducing bacteria become dominant parts of the biological cycling of carbon, and the world changes. Now, let's get back to the uh, Great Wall for just a few more minutes. We already talked lovingly about the direct evidence for cyanobacterial biology in these rocks. Um, as you can see from this picture, stromatolites continue to be a dominant type of structure in limestones and related carbonate rocks. In fact, they are found pretty much everywhere you find carbonates in this time period. This is one of my favorite pictures, uh, only because my, my Russian colleague here with his hat on is exactly two meters tall. So you can use him very effectively as a, uh, uh, a, a marker. Now, some of you will have noticed that this ring of sediment here may well be a stromatolytic reef. And indeed, that's right. You get two points if you actually notice that. And in fact, these stromatolites we actually have clear textural evidence that these are the product of cyanobacterial MAC building communities. So if you notice that there's a reef here, that's good. You actually get two more points if you notice that my friend is actually standing on a reef that's um, probably the size of this room. And you get full points if you actually notice that the entire cliff behind him is made up of stromatolites, a stromatolytic reef that's probably about the size of this entire building. So in those times, cyanobacterial communities were able to build reefs that were as large as the largest reefs forming today, the scale of the Great Barrier Reef but made by microorganisms. So we still appear to be living in essentially a bacterial world 1,500 million years ago. But remember, our experience in Spitsbergen prompts us to look at some other environments before we draw firm conclusions. It's one thing to have tidal flat organisms being dominated by cyanobacteria, but what if we actually go to fine-grained mud rocks that accumulated at some depth in the ocean? Well, when we do that, we find things like this. This is just a essentially compressed round sphere, about 50 microns in diameter. And it may well have been made by a eukaryotic organism. There's some uncertainty how whether you interpret something like that as eukaryotic. It's large, but very simple. 
even if that might be eukaryotic, it turns out that what you don't have is anything like the diversity of spiny forms or vase-shaped forms of eukaryotic unicells that you see in the younger Spitzbergen rocks. You don't have anything like the multicellular eukaryotic organisms that you find in the Spitzbergen shales. In fact, both direct fossil and biomarker molecular evidence suggests that although eukaryotic organisms existed a billion and a half years ago, they were not diverse and ecologically prominent parts of most marine communities. So here at 1,500 million years then, we find that one revolution in biology, the great revolution that brings aerobic physiologies into the world had already happened. But a second revolution, the rise to ecological prominence of eukaryotic cells, had not yet happened. Okay, well, let's just take a minute then and think about the eukaryotic cell. Eukaryotes were insinuated into functioning ecosystems that had been uh, around for many, many millions of years and were dominated by uh, bacterial and archaeal taxa that had been very finely honed to do their job efficiently by natural selection. How did eukaryotes break into that world? Well, to a first approximation, they did it by doing one thing that bacteria simply do not do. And that is eukaryotic cells are able to swallow particles. The cells have a dynamic membrane system that is uh, easily changed on a small time scale. And rather than stabilizing the, the cytoplasm of the cell by putting a wall around it, which is what most bacteria and archaea do, the eukaryotes actually have an internal protonaceous scaffolding called the cytoskeleton that is almost infinitely adjustable, and that allows the eukaryotic cell to actually engulf particles and bring them into the cell. Well, because of that ability, eukaryotes were able to develop a uh, biology that allowed them to become prominent members of ecosystems. Now, how did they do that? Well, I must admit that whenever I see a eukaryotic organism, I'm reminded of a wonderful scene in The Streetcar Named Desire where Blanche Dubois sort of stares dewy-eyed at the audience and says, I have always prospered through the kindness of strangers. And in fact, that's exactly what eukaryotes do. Eukaryotes have prospered because among the particles that they have engulfed, were bacterial symbionts that endowed them with their major metabolic abilities. Now, this is just a textbook picture of the workings of a eukaryotic cell, a, a plant cell in particular. And you can see the nucleus here bound by a membrane. And as at least some of you will know, there are most of the energy metabolism of the eukaryotic cell is bound into two specific sites called organelles, uh, respiration, what we're all doing now, is localized within uh, rather improbably green-colored here uh, organelle called the mitochondrion. And photosynthesis in plants and algae 
is localized within uh, a organelle called the chloroplast. Now, I said before that uh, the photosynthesis in cyanobacteria was specifically similar to the photosynthesis in eukaryotic algae and their descendants, the land plants. And there's a very good reason for that. And that is because the photosynthesis of eukaryotes is cyanobacterial photosynthesis. That is, the chloroplast originated as a free-living cyanobacterium that was engulfed by a eukaryotic host cell and through time became an obligate part of that system. There's a number of reasons why we uh, believe that to be true, uh, not least of which is that the chloroplast has its own DNA and RNA and ribosomes for transcription and translation that are quite independent of what we have in the um, nucleus. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the molecular sequence signatures of, let's say, the small subunit ribosomal RNA uh, signatures of that, that is the signature that was used to build the tree of life that I've shown you, in fact, the chloroplast branches with the cyanobacteria, not with the rest of the eukaryotic cell. So it's fairly well established that, indeed, symbiosis led to the ability of eukaryotes to have photosynthesis. Also, it's clear that the mitochondrion, the seat of aerobic respiration in our cells, also originated its evolutionary career as a free-living so-called proteobacterium, a group of respiring bacteria. In fact, there's a very interesting hypothesis that's put, been put forward, in, actually in a number of guises, that the eukaryotic cell as a fundamental entity was created through an act of symbiosis. The reason people uh, entertain that notion is if you actually look at the basic cell machinery of the nucleus, this machinery that has to do with transcription and translation in eukaryotic cells, it bears a specific relationship to what you find in the archaea. That's why on the tree of life that I showed you based on RNA molecules, the eukaryotes are seen as being specifically related to the archaea. On the other hand, if you look at the relationships of the genes that code for all the various metabolic and, and housekeeping functions of the eukaryotic cell, they tend to be closely related to bacterial cells. And an idea put forward by Martin and Miller last year was that the eukaryotic cell as a whole originated as a symbiosis between a bacterium that took in organic matter and gave off hydrogen and CO2 as products, and an archaean, such as a methanogenic bacterium, that made use of those products for its own biology. Now, that's, that's not a proven hypothesis, but it, it's actually in some ways a fairly attractive one and one that's going to receive a lot of testing in the, in the next few years. The important point is that the eukaryotic cell, because of this series of, of symbioses, some of which we're very clear on, but some of which may have had a, a founding influence on, on the lineages, have created a, a chimera, a hybrid kind of cell that is able to function in this bacterial world. 
What the eukaryotes did then was build complexity on ecosystems. Eukaryotes can respire, eukaryotes can photosynthesize. A few eukaryotes like yeast are able to live without oxygen. But basically, eukaryotes fundamentally do things that bacteria invented before them. In some ways, they thrive by adding new tiers to the ecology. Eukaryotes can be grazers. Eukaryotes can be predators. And they build up, again, an additive biological complexity to ecosystems. Well, let's go to a place that can tell us something about a fossil record that's rich in eukaryotes. Uh, this is a place that's near and dear to my heart. It is a uh, um, phosphate mine in southern China in a formation called the Doshan Tou Formation that's about 570 million years old. That is just before the advent of large animals. And I can give you some sense of this place. The first time I was there, I was just sort of standing there looking at the rocks, and, and this young miner sort of insistently starts tapping on my shoulder and pointing animatedly at uh, a truck nearby. And I, I couldn't understand what he was saying because he, he was uh, talking to me in Chinese, but I could see that other miners were actually diving beneath the truck. And so being no fool, I, I dived beneath the truck as well, and about Five seconds later, there's this big explosion and rocks start raining down on, on the truck. That was my introduction to mining safety in, in, in China. But it turns out that while fertilizer, the phosphate here is mined for fertilizer and really sent all over the world, in fact, the fertilizer from this mine contains some of the most exquisitely preserved Precambrian fossils ever found. Here, for example, is a cell that's about 250 microns in diameter, preserved in phosphate. You can see these spines all over it. Now, that's a eukaryotic cell. I mean, you might easily ask yourself, how is it that we can actually identify a cell as, as eukaryotic? For a biologist, it's a simple matter. There, there's ultrastructure. There's molecular biology. All of these tools that are essentially not available to the paleontologist because the molecular and ultrastructural information is not preserved. What we have is morphology. So you can identify a cell as eukaryotic only if it has a form that is not known to be found in bacteria or archaea. 250 micron spiny things like this are unique to eukaryotic biology. Here's just a little SEM, scanning electron microscope view, just to show how beautifully the surface features of these structures, that's 100 microns, are, are preserved in these phosphatic rocks. Not only are there eukaryotic unicells, but there are multicellular structures preserved in three-dimensional anatomical detail in these rocks. Here's one example, a rather, rather nice one, actually. This is a, a sort of folio, sort of leaf-shaped alga, which was studded with these quartets of cells. Each of the cells is about 20 microns in diameter. And we know from details of the morphology of this that it's very similar, there's the fossil, to this. This is the modern spore-forming phase of a red alga, eukaryotic alga, called porphyra. And it looks like there was a very close relative to modern porphyra living in the Doshan Tou Ocean. 
Here's another beauty. This is a three-dimensional preserved sort of crustose alga, about a centimeter across. And again, every little black dot that you see in here is an individual cell. And here you can see that in some detail. And again, by looking at the details of the morphology and the differentiation of reproductive structures in this, we know this belongs to a different group of red algae, something called the floridiophytes. Well, so by the time we're looking at rocks that are 570 million years old, we in fact have an abundant record of eukaryotic algal diversity. So the question is, at some time between the moment when the Great Wall rocks were deposited and the moment when these Chinese rocks were deposited, the eukaryote sort of broke the ecological hegemony of bacteria and started to proliferate. Well, it turns out the earliest example of a fossil that we can identify and identify as belonging to a specific group of living eukaryotes with any confidence is this population here. Again, found by my graduate student, Nick Butterfield, when he was a student in rocks that we now know to be 1,200 million years old in Arctic Canada. It's a big population of filaments, about 30 to 40 microns in diameter, you can see that there are little lozenger-shaped cells with a, thick, uh, a thin but well-defined inner wall, a thicker outer wall. Notice, if you will, too, that these cells are found in pairs. And in fact, there's pairs of pairs. So we know that these had what's called an intercalary growth pattern. That is, cells all along the filament continued to divide. There wasn't simply a cell at the apex that was responsible for all the growth. Now, there's a cellular differentiated holdfast for this, but most interesting is what happens when the um, filament starts to cleave for reproductive purposes. What actually happens is when you look at these in cross-section, you can see that there's a series of radial divisions without intervening growth to make reproductive cells that are the shape of wedges of pi. Well, it turns out that's actually a very unusual feature of uh, organisms today, but it, and in fact, all the characters of these 1,200 million year old fossils are found today in one group of algae, and that is the so-called bangiophyte red algae. This is modern bangia, fresh from the Boston Harbor, and you can see that it has the same morphology of a inner wall, outer wall, and to jump right to the point, you can see this unusual cleavage to form reproductive spores that are identical to what we find in the 1,200 million year old fossil. Well, that actually allows us to make a direct connection to the younger material in China. And this is a family tree of red algae. What it tells us is that 1,200 million years ago, this branch was present which also implies that there was at least a certain amount of branching before that. By 570 million years ago, this branch is present and actually something that lies within the broad plexus of branches here was present. So the red algae are appearing on the scene at least 1,200 million years ago. And by the time animals become important in ecosystems, they have already diversified to a market extent. 
Well, I won't say too much about the green algae, other than their story is quite similar. I mentioned last night that there were green algae preserved in the sort of six to 800 million year old rocks of Spitsbergen. And in fact, when we place those uh, organisms on a family tree of, of green algae, again, it's one of the latest branching groups of green algae is already present in Spitsbergen. The logic of the tree suggests that all of these earlier branches had already taken place. In fact, there are some single-celled organisms that go back at least to a billion years that appear to be green algal as well. So like the red algae, the green algae were extant a billion years ago and were diverse by the time animals came. One last example, this uh, alga, which is uh, a little more than a billion years old from eastern Siberia, again has a number of different traits, which, uh, uh, such as this particular opening at the end and this septal structure, which allow us to relate it to a group called the xanthophytes living today. Now, this is actually a sister group of the brown algae, has chlorophyll A plus C, and that's of interest because the brown algae very clearly obtained their photosynthesis not by swallowing a cyanobacterium, but actually swallowing something that was very much like a red alga. It's almost like a Matryoshka doll where you have a eukaryote swallowing a eukaryote that contains a prokaryote in this case. More generally, there are other clades of eukaryotes now known in pre late Precambrian rocks. We find things like these from the Grand Canyon, which as I mentioned last night are a heterotrophic group or a, a respiring group called the testate amoebae. Uh, more generally, uh, eukaryotic microfossils, clearly eukaryotic microfossils begin to diversify about 1,200 million years ago and diversify toward the end of the Precambrian. Uh, other um, problematic eukaryotic fossils are abundant. Again, they're abundant in rocks from 1,200 million years ago, but not older than that. Macroscopic structures on shale surfaces, Burgess Shale type preservation, if you will, shows a diversity of uh, eukaryotic algae in late Precambrian rocks, but not before a billion years or so ago. And indeed, these diagnostic molecules of algae tell us that the algae are diverse and important parts of ecosystems after a billion years ago, but not so much before that. Okay, well, getting very toward the end now, but we can take those and try and organize that uh, bit of anecdotal information or, or just paleontological information in terms of the family tree of eukaryotes. And this is basically the information on eukaryotes taken from the ribosomal RNA tree. It shows a little bit of archaea and bacteria for um, just to, to root the eukaryotes. Um, but what it shows us, and this is from the work largely of Mitchell Sogan at uh, the Marine Biological Labs in Massachusetts, that much of eukaryotic diversity that we know and love today represents a fairly rapid diversification of eukaryotic biology relatively late in the history of the group. Now, I will say that some of these earlier branches are suspect, that is, you'll notice that they have very, very long branches attached to them. 
and that generally makes people who do these kind of diagrams unhappy because the mathematics of the situation is such that long branches will tend to attract to each other and migrate to the bottom of the tree regardless of the, the actual evolutionary relationships of the group. So we really don't know what the nature of the earliest eukaryotes were or how diverse their living representatives are today, but it, most people seem to agree that the animals, the sister group of the animals, the fungi, if you've never thought about mushrooms being your closest relatives, uh, that's a take-home message for tonight, I guess. Uh, the green algae and their descendants, the land plants, the brown algae, the diatoms and their relatives, the red algae, an interesting group that includes uh, the ciliates, the uh, algal group dinoflagellates, and actually plasmodium, the uh, infectious agent in, in malaria. All of those groups, and perhaps some others, appear to have diversified very quickly at some time relatively late in the history of the group. Well, we have fossil green algae going back at least to a billion years. We have fossil chromophytes that go back at least a billion years. We have fossil red algae that go back 1,200 million years. So it's tempting to think that what we see here in the sort of inferential record of eukaryotic history taken from comparative biology is actually providing a biological mirror for the radiation of eukaryotic biology at 10 to 1,200 million years ago we see in the geologic record. Now, why that should be, we really don't know. Uh, people tend to take sides on what causes eukaryotic diversity to go, you know, to, to really start to increase. A, a popular idea is what I like to call just add sex. That is, you invent sexual reproduction and that makes eukaryotes diverse. But it could only make eukaryotes diverse if indeed eukaryotes were competitive in ecosystems. And it may well be that there are environmental events that start tipping the scales in favor of the proliferation of eukaryotic um, algae. And the other thing one has to recognize is that 95% of eukaryotic diversity is in fact multicellular organisms. So one of the major reasons that eukaryotes became diverse and became important parts of ecosystems is that they could do two things that bacteria couldn't do. They can swallow particles and they could actually evolve meaningfully um, complex multicellular structures. So that's, that's one where I'll really leave you with a, a, a problem, but a problem that I think is uh, amenable to solution in the last uh, in, in the next decade or so. Well, this is just to remind me to give you a forceful ending. Um, <laughs> what we've seen now is two examples, or some examples of the major themes that I outlined at the beginning of the last lecture. That is, one of my major themes that was biological diversity is cumulative over the whole history of life. And now we've seen how, starting with a group of bacteria, that were dominated by organisms that got their energy by chemical means and lived in a world without oxygen. We then add to those organisms that are photosynthetic and ultimately bacteria and archaea that use oxygen in their biology. We then layer on top of that, adding to the excuse me complexity of ecosystems, eukaryotic organisms. Some of them are 
predators and grazers. Some of them are photosynthetic. We will then add on top of that multicellular organisms. We've already talked about um, a series of multicellular algae. And we have thus almost come back to the beginnings of a modern world. The one ingredient we're missing is the one that's nearest and dearest to most people in this room, which is, of course, animals. And so once again, I'll just leave you on the brink there and tell you that tomorrow night, we will try and add the final element, animal biology, to this mix. Thank you. Those of you who would like to ask questions, please signal that intention to the microphone carriers. There's one in this aisle and one over here. Signal your intention with your hand up and then use the microphone. Thank you. You mentioned last night that you were uh, writing a book. Yes. How, how will we know? I'm not part of the university. How will we know when your book will be published? You, you'll probably hear my wife uh, screaming and yelling. Now, what, what will happen, this, uh, writing a book, I found, is, is, a, is a wonderful and life-interrupting experience. And I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. Uh, I am finishing it in the next months. You should understand that. And what will happen then is that the good people of Princeton press will edit this, will then, uh, I hope, I trust, be widely advertised, will appear in, in bookstores. The working title, I've, I've been worried about a title that would, would really capture, capture the spirit. And I had a couple of pretentious ones that I sort of dropped, and I finally decided that if I really want to send my kids to college on the basis of this book, I really ought to call it something like Harry Potter and the Precambrian uh, fossils or something. But no, the, the serious answer is that I, my, my hope is that if I do my job, it will uh, appear and it'll be on Amazon.com in the, the Princeton book. My understanding was that um, diatoms and coccolithophores, which are important representatives of marine algae and today's ecosystems, evolved relatively late in geological time. That's right. And that, that didn't seem to be what you had presented. I was wondering if you could clarify that for me, please. That, that's a good point. Into some more specific groups of algae, which I talked about. Um, if you look at the algae that are responsible for the lion's share of primary production in most coastal uh, environments, and actually all the mid-part of the ocean today, it's actually three groups of algae, all of which have chlorophyll A plus C. One is the diatoms, which have little shells made of silica and are important parts of the silica cycle. One is a group called the coccolithophorids, which are wonderful little cells that have little pineapple rings of calcium carbonate, um, which are very, very tiny, but which in fact 
are so numerous that they built up the White Cliffs of Dover and things like this. And then the third are the dinoflagellates. There's, there's at least some dinoflagellates are photosynthetic and have chlorophyll A plus C. Now, what's interesting about them is that those three groups are not closely related to each other. They each appear to have acquired the ability to be photosynthetic by independent acquisition by, by symbiosis of uh, chlorophyll A plus C bearing, uh, bearing uh, plankton or of, of a autotrophs. Now, what the gentleman said is absolutely right. There's a major change in the oceans between about 200 and 150 million years ago when the, each of those groups diversifies rapidly to become a major uh, contributor to the oceans. Um, it has been suggested, based on a concept called the molecular clock that we'll talk about a little bit more tomorrow night, that the appearance of the diatoms in particular can put limits on the timing of the invention of chlorophyll A plus C bearing uh, organisms in general. And the way that logic goes is follows, and that is if we know the molecular differences between two different diatoms whose origins are established through fossils, then by assuming that those rates are constant, we can say, well, if there's this much difference between two organisms that separated 100 million years ago, and there's this much difference among all chlorophyll A plus C bearing organisms, then by taking this extrapolation, you can get an estimate for when chlorophyll A plus C bearing algae evolved. When you do that exercise that way, and this has been done by Linda Medlin and her colleagues in, uh, in Germany, what they suggest is that chlorophyll A plus C bearing algae as a whole only originated three or 400 million years ago, much later than that, that fossil I showed would have you, have you believe. Now, there's two ways one can reconcile this. Either that billion-year-old fossil that I suggested had chlorophyll A plus C uh, represents a convergence, that is, some other kind of alga, maybe a green alga, that uh, uh, just looks like modern chlorophyll A plus C bearing algae. And I will admit that that's, that's at least a possibility. Either that's true, or there is something wrong with the extrapolation of these molecular clock data. And it turns out, if, in, if you use the same data set, molecular data set from Medlin et al., and instead of extrapolating from the known fossil record of uh, diatoms, you interpolate from the known fossil record of red algae, then you actually come up with an origin of chlorophyll A plus C bearing organisms that's closer to a billion years. So what I suspect will be what we agree on some years down the road is that as a major group, chlorophyll A plus C bearing organisms originate early, perhaps not much later than red algae and green algae, but that this radiation of coccolithophorids, diatoms, and, and uh, dinoflagellates is a very real thing that tells us something very important, and I think something still very poorly known, about how either biology or environments changes 200 million years ago.
I'd like to ask a naive question because it's naive because I don't know anything about this other than being a, an armchair uh, geologist uh, myself um, and a practicing chemist. It, you alluded to the, <clears throat> the issue of uh, chemistry being, uh, or environmental issues being important in determining uh, evolution here. And I'm curious if there's any evidence to suggest <clears throat> whether or not this, this period that you describe as somewhat of a lull uh, in the explosion of life uh, between the first appearance of oxygenic photosynthesis, which you placed somewhere between two and three billion years ago, and then the post-Cambrian explosion of eukaryotes, whether that might have been controlled um, more so by the chemistry of what life could or could not do. And I'd like to raise the, the question uh, that in order to go from uh, an anaerobic to an oxygenic environment, <clears throat> you probably have to go by a means of reducing oxygen to hydrogen peroxide, mm -hmm. which um, is a very, very nasty molecule, uh, far more reactive yeah. than molecular oxygen as far as its ability to oxidize uh, fragile eukaryotic organisms. So could it possibly be that the reason there would this lull is because in order to make an oxygen-rich environment, you had first to create uh, lots and lots of hydrogen peroxide, which the uh, um, early organisms could easily handle because they're swimming in ascorbic acid and, and other chemical reductants that consume the peroxide. Yeah. That's a good question, and, and it's not something that I, I can give you a, a detailed answer on. It does appear that many early appearing organisms do seem to have molecular defenses against peroxide and, and other harmful, what we think of as, as uh, reactive oxygen radicals, but which on the early Earth, before there was much oxygen uh, gas, molecular oxygen gas may have been among the dominant uh, oxidizing agents in the environment. So even, even uh, a number of early branching bacteria have those sorts of defenses. Whether or not they would make a, a, a specific problem for eukaryotes, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to, to hear more about it from your point of view. It's, it, it's just honestly something I haven't thought much about. So sorry, I, I, I wish I could give you a better answer. <clears throat> On these cells or bacteria, they all seem to assume certain symmetry shape twofold, fourfold. And why these higher order symmetries is there? We never see a cell which just has the lowest order, say it's just, just a ball, a spherical ball, yeah. nothing else. Well, the reason, there, there are plenty of cells today that are basically spheres and rods. Uh, there are plenty of Precambrian fossils that are simply spheres and rods as well. The reason I didn't highlight those in my talk is because the spherical morphology is shared by so many different types of organisms that it's very difficult to be able to say anything definitive about the biology of the organism from its spherical shape alone. At least its, its constituent metabolism and, and uh, uh, evolutionary relationships. So for this, from the standpoint of this talk, and, and actually from the standpoint of my work in general, I have tended to gravitate toward those fossils that gave us the maximum paleobiological and evolutionary information. Those tend to be ones 
with uh, greater complexity. In some cases, they will they will have certain symmetry to them. In, in others, there there may have been uh, any uh, the appearance of symmetry from the the photographs may have been misleading. But yes, there, there's lots of lots of simpler simpler organisms, both extant and in the fossil record. Does that get at your question? Okay. Well, what was the other half? I'll tell you. And I ask why sometimes takes sphere, why sometimes takes a rod, and then some of them they have hateful symmetry. Yeah, um, I, I think th there's a, a fair body of, of sort of biophysical information that suggests when, under what conditions a sphere will be a sort of optimum biology, under what conditions a rod will be. And so I, I must admit, at the end of the day, I, I would think that in particularly these simple organisms, that evolved shape is reflects an interplay between the, the, the very, in a sense, straightforward biophysical constraints on shape and the various ways in which that shape can be modified either by a wall structure of, in, in a bacterium or by a cytoskeleton and or a wall structure in algae. So I, I believe that there is an adaptive overlay, that is, a, that there's a functional overlay on the biophysics. Having said that, there are such things as square bacteria, and no one knows why they're square, as near as I can tell. Yes? Sure. Concept of endosymbiosis No, I, I don't. I don't think that that's true. I, I think that uh, um, the concept of a symbiotic origin for the chloroplast is, um, I, I think, unexceptionally uh, seen as uh, the the way biology has happened by Ford Doolittle and and everyone else who's thought about it. I, I think the acquisition of chlorophyll A plus C bearing uh, algae as having swallowed a eukaryotic photosynthetic symbiont is also unexceptionally seen to be true. Uh, I, I think the, it, you're thinking about an editorial that was in Nature uh, by, by Ford Doolittle. Basically what he said, and this is sort of an interesting thing, the, the, the historical idea was that the eukaryotic cell was invented and it had neither a respiratory organelle nor a photosynthetic organelle, and, and therefore, when you think about it, was not a terribly exciting functional entity. And that that fully formed eukaryotic cell, excuse me, first entered into a symbiosis with a free-living proteobacterium that became the mitochondrion, and then later entered into some of the, a subset of those entered into a second symbiosis that um, gave rise to the plastid. And one of the things that made this all seem very effective was that if you look at that tree of, of eukaryotic biology that comes from the work of Mitch Sogan, the earliest branching organisms on that tree have neither mitochondria nor plastids. Now, 
What's been found out in the last few years is the following. What's been found out, I think, in, in fact, is that when you look at the genetic structure in the nucleus of all of the eukaryotes that have been looked at that do not have mitochondria, in fact, the nucleus has mitochondrial genes in it. So that the theory, theory now is that basically all eukaryotes that we know of today may well be descended from an early organism that had a mitochondrion-like symbiont in it. Um, the new idea is that the symbiosis that gives that whole metabolic capabilities that include the uh, um, ability to respire was actually part and parcel of the symbiosis that gave rise to the, the eukaryotic cell as an entity. So that's really where the difference was. But I, I, I think if we had Ford Doolittle here tonight, he would not contest the idea that the mitochondrion originated as a uh, proteobacteria. I'm going to draw this to a close. It's obvious that we could uh, have a very interesting exchange for much longer, but if we are to have the wonderful talk we're all expecting tomorrow, I think our speaker needs at least eight hours sleep. Thank you, Andy, very much. Thank you.